Hey now, I cannot wait to talk to you about Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. Other brokerages charge you up to 10 bucks for every single trade, but Robinhood does not charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and you keep all your profits. Plus, there is no account minimum deposit, so you can start investing at any level at all. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. You can view easy-to-understand charts and market data, and you can place a trade in only four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections, such as 100 Most Popular. And with Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. And Robinhood is giving listeners of the Jim Rohn Podcast a free stock like Apple or Ford or Sprint to help you get started and build your portfolio. Simply sign up at jimrome.robinhood.com, jimrome.robinhood.com. It got so bad that at a certain point, one of our agents called us up. This is on a Friday. I remember I was standing at a gas station for real when this call came in. I just want you guys to know that uh, you're unhirable right now. Wow. And we said, well, wait, when wow. you say unhirable, can you define it? And he was like, it means nobody wants to hire you. Um, and Incredible. we were both better long before anyone bought billions. We knew, God, nobody can tell us that we're unhirable because we can control our destiny. Welcome to the Jim Rome Podcast. This is episode 73, and my guests are Brian Koppelman and David Levine. They are the creative minds and the powerhouse duo behind the hit show Billions, which returns Sunday night with season four on Showtime. They also wrote Rounders, as well as Ocean's 13. They have made big studio movies. They have made indie darlings. They have seen the highs. They have seen the lows. And right now they're running, in my opinion, the absolute best show on TV. Cop, join me back on Ep 6 of the podcast. It was an outstanding conversation, and I've had the chance to chop it up with Dave in the past as well. But getting these two together in between rehearsals with all that they've got going on right now was an all-time opportunity. So, pot up. Ep 73 with Brian Koppelman and David Levine starts right now. Fellas, it is show week. Season four of Billions begins Sunday on Showtime. Let me start, Brian, first with you. I always ask, and it's great to have you guys back. I always ask this of great athletes before a big game or a fight or a match. What is the emotion like less than a week out? How are you feeling? Brian, let me start with you. You're about a week out right now. How does it feel? It feels great. I think, I think you know, the part that's analogous to that is really as we go into starting to make the season. The advantage we have is we already have edited, cut, and mixed the first seven episodes. And uh, the, early, the early results are in. People who've watched are just loving the season. If you like the show, as I know you love the show, you're going you're gonna to be very happy as you, as you get into this thing. So when we're in that time before we start, and Dave, you, can, you should add to this, we never, you know, when we're trying to think of the season, we are stressed out, and if we say or act like we're not, we're lying because we know how much people care about the show. We know what kind of a following we have, and we know how obsessed people are the same way we were obsessed with shows like The Sopranos and Mad Men. So we want to deliver. But I got to say, I, 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 I feel like our actors are so good. They inspire us so much. And I think that I think the season's a strong one, man. 
Dave, like for instance, and Brian said, and you're right, I love the show. I love the show, and people have such strong opinions about the show. Dave, for those who have not seen the previous seasons, can they jump in right now, and can you give them a short version of what they've been missing and why they need to see this show? Sure, I would love to. And you definitely could jump in right now. You should. You could jump in right at the top of season four this Sunday. The thing about the show is the show in a nutshell is a battle between a hedge fund titan, Bobby Axelrod, young, self-made dude, and uh, Chuck Rhodes, who's a U.S. attorney who was bent on bringing him down. A lot of rounds in their fight have gone on before this, but you can watch the recap right before this episode and catch right up. You can also just binge it on, on uh, Showtime Over the Top um, or on Showtime and, and, and catch right up. And you're going to understand it. This is like a battle between regulation and capitalism, free-ranging ambition between two powerful dudes, one super rich, one very powerful because of the government uh, resources he has behind him. It's primal stuff. You know what, Brian, I'm going to go back to that issue of money and power in a second. But to that point that Dave was just talking about, Brian, the show really is about a lot of things, but notably power, ambition, betrayal. And then that brings us to Axe and Chuck and what appears to be an unlikely alliance this season. Personally, I cannot wait to see how this plays out. But as a viewer, Brian, I mean, you ultimately have to choose, don't you, between Axe and Chuck? Or maybe do you not have to choose? Let me, let me put this in some old school sports terms. I don't know if you remember, but there was a time when Walt Clyde Frazier's biggest rival was Earl the Pearl Monroe. The Pearl was crushing it down in Baltimore. He was averaging like 30 points a game, and Clyde owned the town in New York. And then there was this huge deal to bring the Pearl into New York, and people were sure it was going to be impossible because Pearl would insist on the basketball. What ended up happening is the two guys working together won a championship in New York very quickly. The Pearl was willing to sacrifice. Clyde came to appreciate what a great player he was. And um, I'm sure there's a hockey analogy like that of two bruisers ending up on the same team. Unfortunately, I don't know crap about hockey. You can throw me in on that or Levine can. But the point is, we are not going to tip the hand as to what happens other than to say as you start the season, these two guys are trying their best to go Pearl and Clyde and run the table and win a championship. No, I wouldn't want you to tip your hand either. So, Dave, back to your point. I mean, again, one of the principal questions is money or power. So, Dave, where do you come out? Generally, in this world, would people rather have money or power? Well, a lot of people think that money can buy you power, and a lot of people think that if you have power, you don't need the money. Um, you know, both things can intoxicate you, and they can get you get your moral compass pretty messed up. And I think that's where our characters find themselves, struggling to remember the mission as they have, like, these king-like powers and are going out and increasing their kingdoms. It's hard for them to, uh, you know, remember how to act like regular people. You know, Brian, it's really hey, wait, funny. Romy, Romy, yeah. I have a question for you. Which Hit is, me. You've been able to experience some of this stuff, right? You had big jobs before you really got wealthy. You've been, well, you've been wealthy and then in positions at jobs where it seemed like you should be untouchable, and they still messed with you. I mean, how do you see it? How do you see that balance working? You know, I, I think I'm a lot like you guys. I don't, I don't really feel like I've got that much money or that much power, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> honestly. So I can't really speak to what I can't. Why do I pick between two things of which I have neither? 
But but you know what though? I, I think I think I can relate, Brian, to you guys in a lot of ways in terms of process. And yeah, there are times when you've got the hammer in your hand, and there are times when you do not have the hammer in your hand. There That's are times right. when everybody wants to be around you, and there are times where people do not want to be around you. And you know, I felt that. I felt like I've been really high up, and I don't want to say untouchable. And then I've got times where I felt like, yeah, man, I can't get a return telephone call. And it, it really depends on where you are in a point in time. In terms of the characters themselves, Brian, what's really interesting is, like, I, I would feel like probably the audience had a similar reaction to me when I first met Axe, when you first introduced Axe. Like, I'm watching this guy, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm not supposed to like this guy, but I do. I like him. And the dirtier and nastier he got, not only did I not flip on this guy like I thought that I would morally, I actually started to like him even more. I'm guessing I'm not the only one, Brian, who felt that way. No, I mean, for sure, you're exactly, I mean, you're exactly right. Um, for some reason, Damian Lewis has that magic. You know, in the WWE, they try to, like, force a guy into being a heel, but it doesn't work right. because the audience still cheers for him. Um, so, first of all, it's a couple things. One, we intended to, to get the, the audience to bond with him in the beginning so that, right, because what happened in our culture, and you and I have talked about this before, both on and off the air, is we decided as a culture we like guys like this. We like guys who are charismatic, have a lot of verbal acuity, have some power, have a couple of dollars in their pocket or a, you know, a couple billion in this case. We've decided like to cut guys like that slack as a society. And we wanted to see what would happen if we put a guy like that on TV who was charismatic and who was a lot of fun. Would we notice when he started doing really bad stuff that maybe we should separate a little bit from him and take a harder look at him and try to see the difference between what he said and what he, what he did? And, and for us, look, we're not guys with a mission. We're not, we don't have a big message. Uh, on the other hand, we, as artists, our job is to look at the world and then try to reflect it. And so to pick these two figures and then Wendy and Taylor and set up a bunch of different fictional constructs that play out a lot of the stuff that's going on in the world right now, it seemed to us that it would be compelling. And if, if the benefit is, if it's possible that somebody finishes an episode and turns to their husband or wife or partner or whatever they got, and they go, well, why do we like these people? And they start talking about the world. We feel good about that as long as they, you know, come back and tune in and remember how much fun it is the next week. Uh, I think that's uh, absolutely key. It seems to me like if you watch this show and you just watch it, it's wildly entertaining. It's really funny and it's really smart. And maybe you leave without considering any of these questions. But if you watch the show and then you get to these questions, then obviously that's a huge benefit right there. Dave, really quickly to what Brian said, it's really interesting. When you guys were thinking about the show and thinking about what you wanted to take on, how you wanted to go about it, and you look at these people, right? I mean, you look at people like, you ask yourselves, all right, who's really popular in culture right now, Dave? And you look around and who do you see? You see Donald Trump and you see Mark Cuban. Why were those guys the guys at that time? And how did that impact your thinking on the project? Well, you're hitting right on it. Jim, I mean, when we looked around, we were like, why do we get drawn in by these guys? Why does it look like when you're watching Mark Cuban on TV, you'd love to roll with that guy? He seems like the greatest guy in the world. You know, let's get under the hood of that. And, you know, there was uh, there were some people in public uh, prosecutorial jobs at the time who were trying to track down some of these some of these hedge fund guys and try to trying to curb their behavior. And for some reason, we were like, why do those guys seem like a drag? Or are they really doing the right thing? Um, that's what got us into it. We were like, let's get inside the battle between these guys and see what drives them. And one of the things we found out is that they're driven by a lot of the similar things. 
they they're both ambitious. One one side of the the street wants to get paid off in money. The other wants to get paid off in influence. And we started to see that a lot of these guys who were prosecutors were doing it to get press so that they could run for office shortly after they were done. And that struck us as pretty weird. And we knew we had a show in that. Right, right. Now, Brian, I think uh, we've set the table and we certainly do not want to give up too much or any of this season. So let's go back for a minute. Now, Brian, this is important. You've shared this story before, but there are a lot of people listening right now who do not know this story. And I think it's worth repeating so they understand who you guys are and where you came from. Brian, you were 30. You were in the record business. You were making good money. Most would have considered that a success, but you said that you felt close to a death. Now, not an actual death, not a physical death, but a different sort of death. What did you mean by that, Brian? What were you dealing with at that time? Romy, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about this with you. I want to say one other thing, which was it turned out what Levine and I thought was right and that Mark Cuban is pretty great to roll with, as I'm sure you have. We've gotten to spend quite a few nights with him, and he, he is exceptional. It's very clear with Mark why he's in the position he's in. But, you know, if you talk to Mark and you ask him the, the difference between him and some of these other guys, Mark says he has a real understanding of when enough is enough, that when he made the billion dollars and when he bought the Mavericks, he had a real sense of, I have accomplished what I set out to accomplish. What, we're, what happens in this show is you would think these people get to a place where they've accomplished what they wanted to accomplish. Now they want to turn their, to doing good for the world or to, you know, in Mark's case, making the Mavericks uh, a championship team, finding a way to get Luka Doncic, bring Harold Bobless in to run the team. But these guys need more and more and more. It's never now, enough. To get to your question about where I am um, and where I was. Dave and I were best friends. You know, we grew up together. And... Um, but I'd gotten to a point, I'd had some success in this other business, but I had gotten to a point, we'd had our first child, my wife Amy and I had, had our first child, Sammy, and I felt myself becoming that stereotypical bitter guy coming home, not happy, because I wasn't chasing this dream I had. And the dream I had was to be able to do something creative, to be able to tell stories, to be an artist. And I started to realize that what was important to me was to come be the kind of parent who would say to his kids, chase your dreams. Try your best. Find work that makes you feel alive inside. And so to get to your death question, it was the opposite for me. I started to feel dead inside. And like any other kind of death, this kind of creative death has toxicity. And I felt it would leach out onto those that I love. And I was very scared of that. And I called up my best friend, David Levine, who was tending bar. And I said, Dave, I got to come see you. And I went into the restaurant where he was in the back at the bar. And I said, I got to find a way to shake this up. And Dave had been writing and had doing it and had was in the middle of or just finishing a novel, and he said, if you're serious about it, when we find the right idea, I'll write a script with you. And we gave each other some books to read, and we started talking uh, a lot about it. And then I walked into a poker club, and, you know, and I, in the middle of the night, called Dave, and I said, I think I found the subject. And he said, well, who are the characters? And I said, well, that's where you come in. Let's figure it out. And together, we then met. Now, here's the important thing. People ask me this every day. They say to me, I want to change my life, but I, if I, I, you know, should I quit my job or... I get, we, I didn't quit my job, and Dave didn't quit his job. All we did was find an extra two hours in the day. That meant shutting out the possibility of going out at night and not drinking for a while. It meant we were going to get up early enough to have two hours every day to write the screenplay. That, with no promise that anything good was going to come from it. But as soon as we started doing it, and I know you can relate to this in your work, in fact, the moment we started doing that work together, Everything felt different. The rest of my day, even though I was in a mundane, had mundane parts of my job, it didn't matter. I felt more alive, and and it immediately shifted. And then we got incredibly lucky in that Dave knew a guy who knew a guy, and we were able to 
get the script out into the world, and, and it just so happened the timing was right. That's the part that was luck. But if you sit around waiting for the luck instead of writing the script, it's never going to happen. And by the way, there's so much magic in that. There's so much good stuff in that, and I really appreciate you sharing that story again, Brian. So, Dave, when Brian came to you and, and Brian mentioned you guys exchanged books, Dave, what book did you give to Brian? Because I know it was really a transcendent, transformative book. What book did you give to Brian? Yeah, so there were two key books in this, and, and they both factor into this. The book that Brian had given me was Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins, which helps you lay out your goals and the things that are going to drive you in a very clear-headed way. And one of the things uh, it points out in very simple terms is if something you're doing isn't working, be open to changing your method. Um, so I had always thought that writing was a solitary pursuit. When he walked in and said, I want to write a screenplay, I was suddenly open to the idea of, well, why don't we do it together? The book that I gave Brian was called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And this book espouses a methodology to become a creative person and to, uh, to find small steps that can lead you to going from somebody who wants to be an artist to being a, a functioning, practicing artist, even if you're not getting paid for it. Going from the sort of the, the what you want to be to actually doing it in concrete terms. And we both attacked these books and they both paid off hugely for us. Shop O'Reilly Auto Parts. They have thousands of parts and accessories in stock. Brands that you can trust, like Wagner Brakes, Monroe Shocks, Superstar Batteries, Wix Filters, and more. They can even get those hard-to-find parts, most with free overnight delivery. So the movie, of course, was Rounders. You guys come together and you laid out your process, which is fascinating how you found time after Dave was done tending bar and before you went to work and you committed to those two hours. Now, I would imagine it was the best part of your day. What was it about that world, Brian, that you found so fascinating? Because fact is, you while you are an amazing storyteller, you had to have curiosity, you had to have a passion about it. What was it about that world that you found so interesting? And how much time were you spending in the poker clubs? What was that like? You know, the distinguishing factor of any of the stuff Dave and I have done that's really good, that really works, is like that obsessive kind of fascination. And we don't ever think about, maybe only a little bit, maybe Dave is a little better at this kind of thinking than I am, which is the, will there be a market for it? But I mean, I never, I truly never think about it. I just think about how, in, how obsessed am I? Even Ocean's 13, we got to go, like imagine being two guys like us who wrote Rounders, and I'll get back to the answer to Rounders, and like, we get the opportunity to write Ocean's 13, and we immediately say, we're going to write this movie, but we have to go be, be able to go up in the eye in the sky in Vegas. And they're like, what do you mean? And we're like, we need to go see that. So, like, imagine guys like us who have been around gambling going to an eye in the sky, and then we said, we have to talk to the guy who makes the dice to find out how they work. So, like, that kind of obsessive thinking is what separates what we do. When I walked into the poker club, what happened was I ran into a guy, and, and this piece is up on Grantland somewhere. Still, you can find it. Um, it's about a guy named Joey Kanish, and that's the character. I mean, Joel Bagels, and that's the guy who the character of Joey Kanish was based on. And when I walked in, I, I heard this guy telling stories. He looked just like the way Totoro looks in the movie. And it was like the language, the word to use, the funny phrases. You know, he's the guy who in real life said, um, in the poker game of life, women are the rake. Like, he just said that. And although that's incredibly politically incorrect right now, he can't say it now, he said it and busted up a room of people. Right. And I remember telling Dave, like, there's this guy, there's this scene. You, these people all come underground. That was the other thing. You know, we all talk metaphorically about an underground club. Romy, the Mayfair Club was underground. Literally underground, right? Enter a, a room and then go down these stairs into this basement. 
and they had like everyone was wearing these necklaces that if you push a button it goes to the precinct and the guy told me the mafia had a control you know we're protecting the club and and I just remember thinking, like, I don't understand how there's not a movie in this. And then, Levine, what do you think? The second you walked in, you saw it also, right? Oh, yeah. It was totally clear. These these guys were living in a world under the regular streets of Manhattan, speaking in a language all their own, and doing something that became, like, a hugely popular national pastime soon, soon later. Yeah, it wasn't then. And we just... I mean, also, I was... A, and then, to be fair, I was a degenerate poker player. I mean, I was so happy to find that club because... I was a guy who'd gotten married very young. I had made the decision I was only going to be a faithful husband. I had no vices. I wasn't really a drinker. The only thing I had, the only way to blow up steam when I was in that unhappy place of not having started a career that I was loving um, was to go down under New York City and try to win at poker. And I just fell in love with the game, as Dave did soon thereafter. Well, Cop, that, that and some pizza. Once in a while, you come off the rails and <laughs> slam some pizza, right? Dude, it's horrible. I, you know Oh, I do the Rome, same. I still think the best of Jim Rome is your hot dog hunk. And I, I will tell you, the other day, this is true. I was walking in one of those about it this morning, I walked past Grace Papaya, the, the hot dog place. Sorry, we're getting an echo. But I really wanted a hot dog. And I got the hot dog, and I loved it. And I was about to go in for the second one. And then I remembered what Jim Rome said, which is the second hot dog, never quite as good as the first. Oh, now, now the law of diminishing returns. Exactly. You have that first hot dog. It's the best thing ever. So you immediately want to chase it with a second. And when it's not as good as the first, you're like, I'm going to chase that feeling. I'll have another one. And then you have a third one. And you feel like shit. And by the time you slam the fourth, you're puking it all up. Guys, one more. I appreciate you resetting that, Brian. One last thought about... Uh, about that movie like Dave for instance when it's all clear to you and you guys see it so clearly and then the movie itself is rejected by every agency in town so what happens the movie gets made it's iconic it stands up beautifully even today what was your biggest takeaway from that experience Dave that lesson the lesson in the experience the biggest takeaway is just move on to your next thing keep doing your work and don't worry about it you know this might have been made easier by the fact that I was working on this stuff with my best friend, you know, at least we thought it was entertaining. And, you know, the fact that history kind of came around and wrapped its arms around that movie was a great lesson. But the truth is, when that movie came out, we were already in Montana researching our next movie instead of going around to theaters, seeing how full they were. And, and you know, that was sort of the practice that we always took. Don't wait around and try to rest on your laurels. They may not turn into laurels, just go start working on the next thing, and you're going to always be set. Brian, Montana is such a great state. We had a house in Big Sky for about 10 years. We no longer do, but that, that was such a great state to be in. That was so interesting. But, Brian, you look – I mean, the journey is just insane, right? I mean, it, it would take us hours to lay out what you guys have done and how you ended up where you are. But let me just ask you this, because where you are right now is an amazing place. You would never take it for granted, but still, it's a tough game. It's a tough town. It's a nasty world. You're going to get bloodied. You're going to get busted up, and there's going to be adversity, and there was. While you might be killing it right now, Brian, with a smash hit and a dream opportunity, it doesn't mean that it was always like this, and even not that long ago, it wasn't. You've also told the story that as recently as 2013, you literally thought, you know what? I might be done. My career might be over. And if not over, then radically smaller. What was happening at the end of 2013? Well, it's, it's no different than what you just said about the time that you have the hammer and the time that you don't, right? One of the things about a, a career in the arts and a career in Hollywood in particular is that from the outside, it always looks like fun. It always looks like we're kind of rolling. But as you know, man, when the phone doesn't ring, it really doesn't ring. 
And when they decide that they don't need you, they really don't need you. And we just had a couple of big bumps in a row. Um, we were supposed to work on this show with Scorsese called, that eventually became vinyl. Um, through some political stuff, we never got to work on it. We were publicly fired because that served someone's needs. At the same time, a movie came out that was a disaster for us called Runner Runner. It did very poorly, and it got so bad that at a certain point, one of our agents called us up and said, I just want you guys to know, uh, this is on a Friday. I remember I was standing at a gas station, for real, when this call came in. I just want you guys to know that uh, you're unhirable right now. Wow. And we said, well, wait, wow. when you say unhirable, can you define it? And he was like, it means nobody wants to hire you. Um, and, Incredible. Uh, I, I remember going home and talking to my wife about it, and, and Dave and I have talked about it a lot, and I was like, well, I have to say, am I going to have to sell, sell my apartment in a year? How long is this going to last? Then we got the idea to write the show. And I've, I've told this before, but it is true, and, I, and it's so empowering, is that, so we start working on the show, and I would walk, my apartment's on the west side of Manhattan, I would walk through Central Park to our office on the east side back then. And I remember the first day, just sort of like, walking through the park, slump-shouldered, and barely being able to make it. Then we started working on Billions. I like started to connect with the characters. Hey, this Bobby Axelrod seems really cool. This Wendy Rose, this Chuck Rose. By the third or fourth day, Jim, I was like racing through the park. I couldn't wait to get there. And just the act of doing, the act of, like David said, not waiting for someone else to give us their approval, just the act of showing up every day and meeting my best friend and going to work on this idea that felt alive to us, I started feeling all better. We were both better long before anyone bought billions. We knew, fuck out, nobody can tell us that we're unhirable because we can control our destiny. We can write a thing and make a thing that will separate us again and, and that will find a story that will be compelling enough. Yeah. And luckily for us, it, it worked out. But that has repeated for us over these 20 years more than one time. Listen, it's it's amazing, Brian, in and of itself, but I want to make sure the listeners really understand exactly what you just said. David, help me with this. I mean, this was not something that you guys went out and you pitched and you sold and you went to work. You went to work on this as a spec project. There was no promise of compensation, Dave, at all. How unusual is that, and why did you do that? Well, you you nailed it right there. Here's the thing. Once you've made a, uh, a couple of movies in town, you have the ability to go and sit in a room with um, TV networks, tell them an idea, and more often than not, they'll pay you a little bit of money to go and write it. Now, you'll take that money, and you'll go and take the time, and that money will get you through that time of writing it. But more often than not, what you turn in is not what they thought they bought, and it doesn't work out. Now, in this case, we thought to ourselves, you know, as Brian said, we were unhirable. In fact, the we said to the agent, what do you mean we're unhirable? When a movie's a bomb, they blame the director. He goes, not in this case. You guys are special. They blame you. Wow. We said, okay, great. <laughs> we said, so we're going to go sit in a room with the TV network and, and say, uh, here's the thing. We're going to do a show about hedge fund guys. And they're going to go, wait, you mean the guys who trade stocks and bonds? And we're going to go, yeah. And they're going to go, well, that sounds boring as possible. And we're going to say, but wait, there's more. There's a guy who wants to um, prosecute them in court. So you're saying there's a legal guy who wants to bring a case against them? That sounds even less exciting. We said, you know what? We know where the juice in this idea is. Let's take the time. Let's spend our energy and let's create this thing. Let's write it and make it undeniable so that they see it and they realize that we have all the answers. And, you know, we went and did it. In this case, they bought in. 
Brian, you have a podcast, fascinating podcast, famously titled The Moment, where you talk to compelling individuals about critical moments that you know may have impacted their lives or critical pivots. I wonder, when an agent said to you, Brian, you're unhirable, would that be considered a moment? And then secondarily, was your initial reaction, you know, I've had a good run, maybe he's right, or was your reaction, fuck you, fuck you, we're going to get ours, we're going to do this? As you know, your reaction is both things, right? Somewhere inside, the initial reaction is a bit of fear, right? It's you just wish that you just wish that for once someone would just have the faith, right? Now, luckily, Dave and I have wives, families who have faith in us. But quickly, and part of it is that there are two of us. There are two of us. So when we hung up the phone, I picked, I called Dave, and we were both like, "Fuck that guy! We can't wait till we write the next thing and can fire that guy." And you know, we did fire that guy. Um, who now writes us nice, and it's lovely, actually. We're friends with him again. He writes us nice notes about the show. But, uh, yeah, man, you've got to get your back up, right? And you've got to say, nobody can tell me. Look, the difference between this and an athletic career is in an athletic career, like they say in Moneyball, you know, it's, there comes a time when you have to stop playing the boys' game. But it's, there is not a time you have to stop playing the game as long as you still have compelling ideas. And so our point of view was, we're going to dig in again. And maybe part of it is that, our, you know, our career started by us just going in a basement. So we rolled up our sleeves and we just dug in again, man, which everybody can do. It's just hard to remind yourself. You know, the world works in a way that it tries to chip, it tries to chip you away, right? It tries to chip away at you and it tries to remind you that things are really hard to do. They are hard to do. But if you put your shoulder into it and you decide, I'm not just going to chase my dream. I'm going to chase my dream with great rigor. I'm going to chase my dream with great intensity and effort. Then, honestly, man, when you're in the effortful part, although it's hard, you feel like you're making progress. You feel like you're moving forward. And that's the difference maker, I think, or has been for us. No matter how big or small your team is, Ferguson has a winning game plan for pro contractors. With thousands of plumbing repair parts, knowledgeable associates, and the largest national footprint in the game, when the pressure is on, count on Ferguson. I mean, you talk about work with rigor. I mean, Dave, obviously, Brian Brian talks about these things quite a bit, and people lean on Brian, and Brian's really good about sharing his advice, and he's mentoring other people, and he's not asking for anything in return. He's like, he's paying it forward. He's giving it back. Dave, do you guys, like, when you talk about the moment, and we're talking about Brian's podcast, The Moment, Dave, do you have that moment? Have we already covered your moment, Dave, in this conversation, or is it something different? There, there have been various moments along the way, you know, that one that you asked him about specifically was definitely one. And it's funny because after you face one down, you think maybe that was it. I'm not going to have another. But the fact is, there is there's going to be more than one. You know, there was one early on when we'd written a script to, uh, to rounders and somebody came in with a low ball option offer on it. They were sort of devaluing our work or trying to get it for a steal. And even though we had nothing to hang our hats on, we said, you know what? No, we're not going to take that. You want this movie, you're going to have to buy it for full price. And, you know, it seemed like a crazy thing to do because neither one of us had a foothold in this business. But, and, and even our lawyer, who was negotiating the deal at the time, thought we were crazy for asking. But lo and behold, 20 minutes later, the guy called back and said, they, they took your terms. So, you know, well, that, I was, think, that was one I of those moments Dave where you understand. Jim, Dave, I got to give you full credit because I was on an airplane. And I landed, and Dave said they, they offered us X, which was like a really decent option. And I go, that's great. And Dave said, I rejected it. And I'll give myself credit. And then I said, if you did, then that was the right thing to do. And Dave just went to the wall for this thing because he knew that if they bought it, they would be more likely to make it. 
and they would be establishing that we were real riders in the business. Dave, yeah, that was a heroic move on your part, man. Dude, that's you a big swing. Paid off. Yeah, that, that's a brass ball swing back then. Brian, so Harvey Weinstein bought and made the movie. I'm curious, how did you feel about him at the time? And do you have to reconcile anything about that, knowing what you know about him right now? Like, do you just kind of take him out of the process? Was he part of the process and you have to embrace that? Uh, How do you approach I'll it? Answer the, I'll answer the question this way. None of us had any idea about the behavior that he's been nailed for. What we didn't at all. Um, because Dave and I were around Harvey in 1997 and 98, and really that's it. Um, so that was a long time ago. I will say this. He... He had great taste in movies, and he was an incredible bully, um, a brutal bully. And uh, he was, uh, at various times, a bully to the director, John Dahl, at various times, a bully to us, various times, a bully to the executives who worked there. I guess David and I thought that was what the business was like, because that was our first experience. I guess we thought you work for one of these titans, and they're going to bully you. And that bullying took real forms, like screaming, yelling, threats, all that stuff. But because we weren't powerless, we weren't, you know, he wasn't taking his thing out and doing what he did into the potted plant with us, Jim. He was just bullying us and acting like a, a miserable prick. Also, he had given us money and bought our movie, so we were co-opted in that sense, and that, hey, man, you're going to make our movie. But by the end, we stood in there and fought with him and backed him off. Um, and it was a, that part of it was a brutal welcome into the business. That said, we had no clue that, the behavior was what it really was. We just thought he was an asshole who happened to have great taste. I appreciate that response, Brian, quite a bit. You know, really quickly, David, just to follow up, at that time, were you thinking, you know, this is just part of being an artist, this is part of the deal, or were you thinking, man, this is fucked up, this is just wrong? You think both things. It's really weird because you're beholden in a certain way. You owe this guy so much for having the the courage of his own convictions to sort of put his stuff on the line and write a check and then write a big check for the budget of the movie when nobody else would, you kind of admired that and you appreciated it. But then on the other hand, when all that strength is coming at you in a negative way for him to get what he wants out of you, that's not what you want to give. It's super conflicting and confusing and it's a lot to withstand. I appreciate both your thoughts on that. Brian, I got to ask you something before I let you guys go. You were tweeting about a guy, Brian, who is an endless source of fascination to me. He's right now my favorite guy to read. He's my favorite guy to listen to, Jocko Wilnick. Now, I'm the, you know how badass you have to be to have a name like that? He is and then some. What is your connection to Jocko, if you can share it? I'll say this. I have to pass this one over to my partner because Dave really brought Jocko into our world. We know him. I'm not going to say he makes a cameo on the show this year. I'm not going to say that we're going to podcast with each other. I'm just going to say Jocko was uh, all man in a way that I certainly am not, in the old definition of man. But, Dave, why don't you talk about Jocko and how you've given his books away and all that stuff? Well, Jocko's a guy who's a decorated uh, ex-Navy SEAL who is now, I don't even know how to describe him now, I guess like a force for inspiration and um, I, I guess he, he gives uh, seminars on business management, but it's really more about making people overcome their own excuses in order to succeed. This is a guy who, who likes to tweet and Instagram pictures of his watch every morning at 4.30 a.m. when he wakes up to work out. And he just 
has no room for excuses. He, he wrote a book called Discipline Equals Freedom. I took one look at this thing. I bought 10 of them. I gave one copy to each of my sons, God. and I give them away to people who I think need it because it gives you the tools to figure out how to stop whining and complaining about the obstacles in your way and to either go over them, go around them, or go through them. Dave, that book, I mean, I, I had the same exact reaction. I read that book and could not buy enough copies of that book. That book hit me the exact awesome. same way. The book is absolutely amazing. Now, Brian, you you meditate. I would imagine yoga is a part of your your uh, routine it as well. Been. It's more a part of Dave's life than mine and my wife's. But, yeah, I do it. I do soul cycle. So, like, jo- like Jocko. I, I do soul cycle. Okay, and I, I have a Peloton, which I love, but Jocko, man, Jocko is right up in your face and doesn't want to hear anything at all. Do you respond pretty well to that, Brian? Well, yeah, this is true. He came to New York. I was going, well, Jim, I was just skiing at, at right next to where you were. I was skiing Yellowstone recently. Right. And I was worried because I'm a fat, older guy. I was like, I'm going to get hurt. So I was kind of whining about it, and Jocko basically was like, don't whine about it. Figure out the exercise plan that's going to make it when you get there. You know, he was just all over me about it. And so I was like, all right. And so I committed and I did six days a week in Soul Cycle, which is, you know, for if you're going to go skiing, you could do a lot worse than that. And I just like, no matter how early in the morning, a rainstorm, snowstorm, like I got myself there because I knew if I didn't, and Jocko asked me online and I had to say I didn't, I would just get an unreasonable amount of shit from it, you know? And uh, I just didn't want to get that level of shit. All right. So I don't know. And by the that... way, Brian, six yeah. days a week is one day less than Jocko goes. Oh, I'm aware. I'll give you like week. this. Great. You guys, I don't know if you guys saw this. So, so I tell the story online. I go, um, hey, it was pouring out, and I went to Soul Cycle, and then the instructor canceled. And I thought it was my free pass. And I went home, and I sat there, and I thought about what Jocko would do. And I went back in the fucking snow to the next class. And Jocko writes, half a credit. So I quote tweet that. And I write, half a credit from Jocko. How great. And then he writes, too big an ego, credit withdrawn. Oh, that hurt. No, man, exactly. Exactly. That hurt. And let me tell you, and and Brian, let me tell you something else. Because I know Yellowstone, because I mean, I don't want to be this guy, but that's why we were there. We were members. Jocko ain't having that. Jock, can you imagine if you walk Jocko through the Yellowstone Club? (laughs) I can't even imagine. No. Oh, hell no. By the way, can I just say, Mike Melvin's a genius and he made an incredible place. And anytime I'm invited there, I'm going, Jim. But. Uh, uh, that place is amazing, but no, I can't picture Jocko there. No, hell no. Hell no. All right, guys, so Sunday is the time. I want to remind everybody to check out Brian Koppelman's podcast at the moment. Guys, I just want to say I wish I was trying to rack my brain to think about when we all sat down for that meeting at CAA. It had to have been late 90s, you guys think, early 2000s? I think 15 years ago. I think 17 years ago, maybe. And I remember sitting with you guys, and my agent at that time set the meeting up, and I, I walked out of there thinking, these guys, not only are these like the smartest guys that I've ever met, they're like the best guys that I've ever met. And I just want to say that all this time later, I'm not going to say that you haven't changed because we all change and we all evolve, but you guys are still the smartest guys in the room and the best guys in the room. And I can't say how happy I am for all of your success. The show is brilliant. I know you're never going to rest on that, but to think that you found time for the podcast and we could all get caught up it was just absolutely awesome, fellas. Romy, you're the best. Thanks You've always so been a hero man. of ours, man. Hope to see you soon. Take care, Jim. Already 2019. So let me ask you this. Are you still doing things the old way at work? Different year, different you, right? 
So make sure that you replace that software that is causing you angst and agony every single day. You know what I'm talking about. You know the one. You can find software that you love that fits your business needs by using Capterra.com. With over 700,000 reviews of products from real software users, discover everything you need to make an informed decision. Search more than 700 specific categories of software. Everything from project management to email marketing to yoga studio management software and more. I'm telling you, my software situation on my computer at work jacked up. I went to Capterra and I saw so many software solutions that I didn't even know existed. Things are now flowing much more smoothly around here. Capterra.com slash Rome. Visit right now today for free to find the right tools to make 2019 the year for your business. Capterra.com slash Rome. Capterra, that's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash Rome. Capterra.com slash Rome. Damn, that was a blast. That was amazing. Huge thanks to Coppin Levine for the first ever Jim Rome podcast tandem convo. And remember, the new season of Billions premieres on Showtime this Sunday, March 17. Make sure you lock that in. That is my favorite TV show. And while you're here, go ahead and hammer that subscribe button. It is the biggest no-brainer ever. You get subscribed, and then you never, ever have to look for the podcast ever again. It will find you every single week. It will just auto-download across your listening devices Every week at this time. It's simple, it's easy, it's smart. Lock it in, go ahead and do it. I'll catch you right back here for EP74 next week. But until then, here are your coveted voicemails. First new message. Hey, Jimmy. Uh, Jake in Buffalo here. Hey, is Harper going to the Giants? Harper going to the Phillies? I don't really have a horse in the race, but if I did, it'd be Sarah Jessica Parker. Message deleted. Next message. Roll me roll. Hey, man, listen. You want to weigh in on this crap thing? I don't see really that much that's wrong with it, with him going and doing the act. Just don't do it at a strip mall. This guy's a billionaire. Go get you a nice call girl. Bring her to the house and hook it up and be done with it. Message saved. Next message. Yo, what's up, bro? This is Josh from the Central Coast, 805. Man, I just checked out the Pat Perez and the Steve Elkington podcast. Those are my type of dudes right there. Like, I'm not a golf guy, but that shit makes me want to go out and buy a set of fucking clubs and go fucking golfing, you know what I mean? Message saved. Next message. Jim, what's up? This is David from Buffalo calling in about Antonio Brown. Hey, dude, good luck in Oakland, man. A mess of a, a situation there with a franchise that's going to be moving any any day, any time. Um, an offense is going to be way more complex than anything you would have ran in Buffalo. And, oh, oh by the way, you're 31 you're going to break down sooner or later. Congrats on uh, you know going out there to Oakland. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, buddy. Message saved. Next message. Jimmy, it's Connor. Jimmy, I'm in a real bind, man. This fucking guy tried to take my fucking picture in Miami, and I fucking grabbed this phone out of his fucking hand, and I smashed it with my fucking foot, Jimmy. Now they want to fucking arrest me and charge me with a fucking felony. Jimmy. Jimmy, Jimmy, are you there, Jimmy? Pick up the phone, for Christ's sake, Jimmy. Message deleted. You have no more messages.